This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Welcome to episode 40 of Baseball and BBQ. Where did BBQ stand for? Barbecue. I'm your co-host Jeff Cohen, along with Len Rocky Aberman. Yo, Adrian! <laughs> and we have a knockout of an episode for you tonight. Hey, Paulie, tell me who's going to be, a, I should say, hey, Jeff, tell me who's going to be on the episode. We have two great interviews. We have First, we have Chris Epting, who wrote Roadside Baseball. Len, that's a great book. Fantastic book. You pick this book up. The, the trivia in there, well, I'd say trivia, facts. It facts. Is, there is, there is trivia. trivia. History. Uh, yeah. It, it's one of those books that you can pick up at any time, read one part of it, or one page, and put it back down. Keep it in your car for when you travel because it's got listings for every state, and it's one of those books where you're going to want to just visit these places mentioned in the book. It's definitely a terrific book. Our second interview is with... Radio personality, Lori Rubinson of WFAN. She was great. We talked about herself, her career, um, advice for people who want to get started in the business, and of course, a lot of baseball talk. And that's what this episode is going to be concentrating on this week, baseball. So for those of you who are looking for barbecue, we are sorry. This is definitely a baseball-heavy episode, but we will, the next episode... Make sure that we concentrate on barbecue. And with that, here's our interview first with Chris Epting of Roadside Baseball. Chris Epting is the author of 30 travel history books, including James Dean Died Here, Hello, It's Me, Dispatches from Pop Culture Junkie, and the book we're going to discuss, Roadside Baseball. He's also an award-winning travel writer and has contributed articles to such publications as the Los Angeles Times, Westways and Travel, Travel and Leisure Magazine, among other publications. In addition, Chris is a veteran music journalist and recently co-wrote Def Leppard's Phil Collins' memoir, Adrenalized, and the John Oates' memoir, Change of Seasons. Originally from New York, Chris now lives in Huntington Beach, California with his wife and two children. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Chris Epting. Welcome, Chris. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Wow, that's, that's an incredible bio. Well, thanks. I appreciate you focusing on the, uh, the the finer parts of it. I mean, those are you know those are the things I'm passionate about and what I like to do. So, thanks for mentioning. Them. Yeah. Now, before we get into the book, I also saw on your web page uh, that you you had a picture of yourself with Florence Henderson. Yeah. As as Yogi Berra would say, you must have taken that before she died. <laughs> I did, I did, and I had a, a really cool night with her a couple of years ago, a few years back, and as a product of the 70s, any opportunity for any kind of Brady Bunch um, close encounter, I've, I've always relished, and 
Um, I've met other cast members and written about them and had Eve Plum come to my house once for a story I was doing. So I've been lucky in the uh, the Brady Bunch realm. I've been fairly, fairly blessed. Nice. Very cool. Nice. You mentioned uh, your passions, and obviously one of your passions is baseball. So uh, tell us, how, how, how did your passion get fed? Well, I mean, I grew up in the New York area in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I had a lot of my mom's side of Brooklyn were all former Brooklyn Dodgers. And so I would hear, even in the, in the late 60s, I would hear a lot of really angry uncles still um, bemoaning the fact that the Dodgers had left New York in the late 50s. And so that was kind of my entree to hearing baseball stories, you know, hearing all about Evan Field, out there, all of their um, fun adventures decades earlier in Brooklyn going to see games. But, I mean, I like I liked the sound of characters like Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson. And then I remember um, when my dad went to a World Series game in 1969, the game that Ron Spoda made that catch. And he came home and sort of reenacted it for me. And that, that really kind of came interest. I was about eight years old. And, I, you know, that sort of did it for me. And I started watching baseball on, on TV and on the radio and playing Little League and all that. And I was a history fan as well. And so the combination of those two things for me was, was really important. I remember going to Cooperstown to the Hall of Fame for the first time when I was about 11. And I went to the bookstore looking for a book that would kind of travel around the country and visit places where baseball history had brushed up against. And there wasn't one. And I literally vowed as a kid, I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. So I said, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to write that book. And that's what, honestly what Roadside Baseball is. It's that dream realized, you know, some 30, 40 years later. Yeah, the the book itself, and we've got a the, listeners, this is for baseball uh, trivia. Um, just if you love baseball, you this is this is a great book. Absolutely. It's called Roadside Baseball, and right, I love discovering the the little places that you know the hole in the wall right. that, that has baseball connected to it. So I, I really enjoy this, and I'm going to uh, going to uh, Arizona next month. So this is uh, I'm definitely going to use this and go to some of those places. That's perfect. Find some AC when you're out there too, because Arizona in August is going to be you know it's, it's a little warm. It's dry heat notwithstanding. It's still, right. still really warm. Yeah, I, I know, but I have to take a kid to college, so uh, that's what I got to do. Um, so places, and, you know, I like to think the book is also for people that may not even be huge baseball fans because a lot of American history, it's a lot of Americana, right. it's a lot of things that just remind us of what makes the country so special. So, again, it's baseball-related, but I think there's enough little excursions in there that are more a celebration of, of great characters and just great stories about the country. Now, have, have you actually been to all these places? Most of them. I mean, you got to understand, that, was, that book was the sum total of a lot of years of traveling, but I couldn't take a family vacation and not go track down, you know, what used to be, you know, the former site of Crosley Field or Connie Mack Stadium or whatever. I was always doing that and always shooting pictures and always kind of accumulating that information. So once I did the first edition of the book, which is all the way back in 2003, you know, the Sporting News published it originally, I had about a year to go out and, and really research and travel and do the legwork. Uh, and then subsequently, this is the third edition of the book, and I've done a lot more travel and research. So yeah, I mean, it's, it always helps to go firsthand to visit a place and meet people connected to that place and shoot your own photos and all. So yeah, in as much as I can, most of the places I have been, and that's why I like to work with a book like this. We, we um, well, one of the things that I like about the book is that you'll mention 
uh, a lot of things about the Negro baseball leagues. They'll mention players. Um, you know, you don't just concentrate on Major League Baseball. You concentrate oh, on the I've Negro leagues. I've always about that. I, I really, you know, I, I loved reading about the Negro leagues as a kid, and always obviously could understand the fact that those guys were were dealt a really, sh- you know, didn't get to to enjoy the fruits of their labors like the major leagues did, and there were just some amazing ball players. And there was a gentleman, and an anesthesiologist, back in the last few years, has made it his mission to all of these Negro League uh, final resting sites where there were no graves. He's gone and had them marked, raised the money for markers and headstones and all this. So I actually interview him in the book. And so there have been a lot of great movements to help recognize the Negro League, you know, whether it's, you know, Josh Gibson, birthplace or where Satchel Page lived or anything like that. I wanted to include all those things in this book and really make it a definitive uh, journey for Negro League sites as well to help a younger generation appreciate what these guys did. Absolutely. I noticed that, I'm not sure if it's a recurring theme in the book, but a lot of players are, I shouldn't say a lot of players, players are recurring in different states. If you, as you go through the states, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth, Etc. Roberto Clemente have parks named after them. Have uh, I don't know, roads named after them. I try to include all that. Any place that's been affected by baseball history. And yeah, to your point, there are certain personalities whose name you know they're almost like you know Johnny Appleseed. They just their legacies have traveled the country and the world in some cases and resulted in all these parks and stadiums and things. And Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson are probably the two. You know, the two names that appear most in the book because of all the tributes that have been made to them and just all the places they touched. I mean, Jackie Robinson, we associate Ebbets Field with his first game, but you break it down and you go to Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey where he played his first minor league. You know, it's sort of, he had a lot of firsts up in Canada. There was a first up there. So, so once you break down a, a big event like him breaking the color barrier, you realize it's not just one place, there are many places that have got the office in Brooklyn where he signed his contract with Branch Rickey. You know, that's really started it all. Um, so I, I like to really get deep and, and really kind of go off-road and find places that are that help tell a story, not just the one place you may have known about, but the ten places you had no idea existed. Yeah, with, with uh, Babe Ruth, it's almost like with George Washington where it's like Babe Ruth slept here. Because, you know, you've got where Babe Ruth had his last at bat, or Babe Ruth hit his first home run, or Babe Ruth, uh, his father's bar, or Babe Ruth, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's oh, totally, and Ruth, you know, he was that kind of character, and the other thing that makes that a lot easier is that in the off-season for a lot of years, I mean, for decades, Ruth would barnstorm during the off-season, you know, he would go out and play games all over the country with amateurs and other traveling major leaguers, and basically was spreading the word of baseball west of the Mississippi when he did this. You know, part of the reason was he made a few bucks doing it, but I think more than that is he wanted to escape all the attention in New York or Boston or playing back east, and he would hit the road and go hunting and fishing and play baseball. So every one of those trips resulted in little hotels where he stayed or lakes where he fished or little ballparks where he would play against, you know, the local Lions Club or something like that. And, you know, you could, you could literally do a whole book. I think there's a book within a book here of just the Babe Ruth sites. Oh, I'm sure there is. I mean, I'm looking at the pictures, and did you take all these pictures by yourself These from your cameras? Uh, most of them, yeah. I mean, not the vintage ones, obviously, of the players. But, yeah, I've shot, you know, pretty much everything in there, stuff that I, that I saw and photographed. 
But I definitely want to go to some of these places. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing Babe Ruth's first professional home run, and that was in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, fair. I, I, as a baseball historian, Len and I are, I mean, we love baseball history, never knew that. I mean, I've heard stories that it was in Toronto or it's in Baltimore, but this professional home run was in actually North Carolina. Right, that's where the Orioles were playing during the spring that year. There's an even crazier one, I think, in there. It's in the new edition of the book that took place in 1918. This is by the time where Ruth is playing for the Red Sox. And they were in spring training at a little place called Hot Springs, Arkansas, where a lot of teams would spring train. And at that point, Ruth, he was a pitcher. He didn't hit a lot of home runs. He was getting like three or four season, you know, nothing crazy. Um, but he hit a home run in, in Hot Springs that traveled out of the park, across the street, and landed. There was an alligator farm, like a, you know, where they could go visit alligator, the tourist attraction. And this home run landed in one of the pools where the gators were, and they measured it at something like 550 feet. And what that did was the owners of the Red Sox were like, wait a minute, there's a long ball game here we've never really thought about. They call it the home run that changed baseball. If you go there today, the ballpark is gone, but the alligator park is still there, and the pond where it landed, there's a sign in the pool marking the site of what they call the home run that changed baseball, because it was really the home run that made people realize, hold on a second, there's a, this guy can do things we've never seen before, and, and if he can hit that home run once, well, he can do it again, and then all of a sudden, of course, he's no longer a pitcher, he's a full-time player every day in the outfield, so they can get that bat in the lineup and not have to wait every fifth game for it. So, Chris, that ball that landed in the alligator pool, that was one of the first collectibles. But the guy that went for it, <laughs> he had to quit his job the next day because now he's armless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine even having alligator stuff, you know, with the way with the way stuff is marketed today? Of course, we didn't. people didn't think about that stuff back then. And God only knows what happened to the ball. But there's a lot of home runs that we've hit around the country that are supposedly, you know, the longest ever. And I've got them all in there because, thankfully, people would mark these things and put up signs and have little ceremonies. And, and it's a tribute to, to just what he did. And he was like Paul Bunyan, you know? I mean, he was, the, the myth of the guy just out, overshadows anything he really could ever have been. But for me, real, and I'm a huge Babe Ruth fan, where I grew up in Westchester County, New York, he was laid to rest only about 15 minutes away in Valhalla. And so I would always go there as a kid and visit his grave, leave my Yankee hat there and everything. And so yeah, Babe Ruth is a he's a fun he's a fun ghost to chase around the country. <laughs> the book is split for our listeners. The book is split up by state. So I believe every state yeah, by region, but every state is in there, right? Chris, is there any there all fifty states are in there? All fifty states and now in this edition we've got Canada, Mexico, Japan. Cuba. But yeah, all 50 states and then alphabetical within each state, you can look up, you know, depending on what you're looking for, everything is outlined in there. And I think it's a pretty easy book to follow. In this edition, I kind of did a breakout in every major league city with like, if you want to spend a whole day doing baseball stuff before or after a game, I kind of lay out a little way you can spend a full day with a handful of places to visit that are close to the park and all that. I, I just think, you know, if you're going to go to a game and make something of it, you know, why not add on a museum or a cool bar or a restaurant or something that's related to baseball if it's in the neighborhood, you know, and really kind of make it a full-on celebration sport, not just going to the game. Let me ask you this. Uh, since all 50 states are representative, some are obviously more heavy in baseball. What, what states 
are like have very few representation, very the very least. It's like uh, uh, I mean, Alaska say, has one. Alaska has one. Play the game of the midnight sun, a very traditional game. Right. Years. But you know, once you get up into like the Dakotas and Wyoming and Montana, it's a little thin up there. You know, you've got some amateur league stuff, some minor league stuff, um, or, or maybe a guy's been was born. You know, you go to where Harmon Killebrew was born in Idaho and things like that. So, so you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the western states and, and states up north there are a little bit thinner. Um, but but every state's got something. You know, every state's been brushed on some level. And again, Babe Ruth on those born barnstorming trips. He would go play in those places and go play in in Iowa, Nebraska, and places that didn't have much baseball, you know. And and that's where people got their first taste of the sport was because of those barnstorming games. So even the states that aren't that heavily represented, I didn't want to leave anything out. I really want this book um, with each edition to be the definitive baseball travel book. That's always my goal is to make it a book unlike any other that'll just take you places, even if you just read about them and don't go there, just so you know. They're out there for whenever you do want to hit the road. Yeah, you mentioned that you have outside the United States, you have a section called Outside the Lines. Right. And I just saw a re- uh, an article recently on the um, Canadian Hall of Fame, the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, which I saw you have in the book as well. It's great. I mean, look, Canada has a lot of baseball history. I mean, the oldest, uh, you know, ballpark in North America. Uh, where baseball is played continuously is in Canada. You know, Babe Ruth played in Canada. There are markers up there for him. You know, Jackie Robinson played in Canada. There's great baseball history up there. Plus, you've got the Expos and the Jays have been around for long enough now where there's some good, you know, good stories attached to those teams and stuff. So, yeah, Canada is definitely a very, very uh, strong hotbed for baseball landmarks. And I think a lot of them in the book, um, some expected and, and some really kind of, kind of strange and out of the way. You know what I found interesting? Uh, with Mickey Mandel, he's known as the Oklahoma Kid. But in the book, he's really represented in Kansas. He was discovered in Kansas. He was an exhibit in Kansas. His first his professional debut was in Kansas. Never knew that. Yeah, well, that's where he was playing ball. You know, I mean, look, he played ball in Oklahoma, obviously. But as he began you know, making a name for himself, it was in Kansas. That's where he was scouted. I've got the park where there's that river where he was the kid that could hit the ball across the river, you know. And the river still still flows out there, and there's still a baseball diamond there. And those, to me, actually are some of my favorite places where you're out in the Midwest, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and realizing this is where legend started. I mean, for, there's a site in Iowa where Cy Young first started. Mickey Mantle, obviously, you know, Bob Feller. On, on their farm, and it's in, in, in Iowa, and those are the places that, to me, are really magical. But who, like Bob Feller in particular, you take this farm kid, you know, whose dad was so adamant that his son become a ball player that he built a diamond on their property and created team, created essentially a competitive league, so his son would have people better than him to play against, you know. And when you go to that farm today and see the field where it all took place. My God, this is where you know, Bob Feller first threw a baseball. It's really intriguing. I think there's a real charm to those places that are off the beaten path. Because um, then you begin to realize the the path those guys had to take. And here you have Mickey Mantle, this you know this hasty, you know, who winds up at the biggest media market in the world, you know, and 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 becomes the greatest player of his generation, you know, arguably. And and. But what kind of culture shock was it for Mickey Mantle to go from where he did 
to New York City. You know? and it's, it's just, those are the stories that to me are so compelling. Small town kids who make it and then wind up like changing the world in the, in the big cities. And Chris, so when you're doing the research on this book, there are certain things in baseball that you know are myths that somehow people some it, you know become fact, not sure, right, and and vice versa. So give me one thing that you always thought was a fact, which you found out wasn't true. That might be. I I know we didn't give you this in advance, but and the other thing is something you never knew that you were shocked to find out? Uh, it's a wonderful question, and there are actually, there's a number of them. The one that really sticks out in my mind was as a kid growing up, you know, watching the movie Pride of the Yankees, right? Right. Like we all did. Right, mm-hmm. yep. And, and I was always under the belief, because of how it was reported and how it was always depicted in film and in books, that, that Lou Gehrig's last game was in Detroit, that he went there and pulled himself out of the lineup, went to manager Joe McCarthy and said, you know, I can't play it. Sick. And that's where the streak ended, and that's how it is in the movie. And, and if you look at most books, his last game is in Detroit. That's where he, you know, if you remember going to Tiger Stadium, I thought, wow, this is where Lou Gehrig's career ended. But I, then I learned that that wasn't the case. And what the story is, is back in July of that year, uh, it was 39, the Yankees, this is kind of bizarre, back in the late 30s back then, teams would play mid-season exhibitions against their farm club team. And the Yankees had a game scheduled against their, what would be considered AAA team, in Kansas City, three weeks after Lou Gehrig took himself out of the lineup. And what I learned was that when Gehrig heard that 30,000 tickets had been sold in advance of the Yankees coming, because fans really wanted to see him, he actually suited up for that game. He played only three innings, very weak. But he wanted the fans to see him in uniform. And he plays the three innings, he leaves the game, gets on a train, and goes to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where he's diagnosed a few later with ALS. But, but the fact that that was really the last game, that it wasn't in Detroit, but that to please the fans, that Garrick played this little meaningless exhibition just so fans could have a look at him in the Yankees. That, that to me was a big reveal. I anyway, you know, municipal stadium in Kansas City is gone now, but if there's a park there with uh, with some pictures and things, when I mean, you go there today, when I stood at that park, I thought, wow, this is really where the Iron Horse, this is where the legend ended right here. Not not le- legend goes on, obviously, but the playing legend. After his last suited up and his cleats last stepped onto a baseball diamond. So that one, for me, really kind of set the record straight. I never knew that, you know. I, like most people, believed his last game was played in Detroit. Right. The fact that he did it the way he did it and went out the way he did to me was an even more poignant uh, ending to, you know, of course, an otherwise storied and really fabled career. Well, we didn't know that either until right. now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how, you know, that's, uh, I think, the fun of writing a book like this is, you know, for to do that, to have that moment where it's like, I didn't know that. But now you can take that information, you pass that along to somebody. And that's how a lot of these stories live on, is just by prompting it, by having the conversation. And then you go away and share it with somebody else, and they share it with somebody else. And I like to believe, or I hope to believe, that a book like this is something that just, it helps not just clarify, but extend these stories so that generations down the line can enjoy them as well. And what I what also is great about this book is you could pick this book up and just open it up anywhere, which I was doing, and just read something. 
and it there's you don't have to read it in any order i mean this is the perfect coffee table book just pick it up at any time I like your bathroom book i get lots of them <laughs> <laughs> love it and at the end of the day yeah i think given how people's attention are today it's fun to just pick up a book and my goal was to have something absolutely cool on every single page of that book you know because that is how people use it or if they're traveling i get notes from people a lot that are on the road you know and it's in their glove box and they'll pull it out and say okay we're in ohio today what are we going to do and the book becomes their guide to those places so yeah i think it's i think it's really flexible and easy to use and you know you can read it for a minute or an hour it does i don't think it really matters the point is that any time spent with it i hope anyhow you come away with something you didn't know before well i know i'm going to mark up this book because i'm going to go check in there check in there gotta go here check i, I know i'm going to be doing all that yeah, and also... Yeah, well, that, I, I really appreciate that. That's yeah. that's the intent, again, of a, of a book. I've written a lot of these kind of offbeat travel books, but, you know, my passion for baseball, for me, makes this one really special. And, you know, just as a fan of the game, as a student of the game, I, I love finding places. I mean, I one of my favorite new places in the books, so I live in Southern California now, and I don't think a lot of people realize that when you're... If you go to a game at Dodger Stadium... You're literally only 10 minutes from where Babe Ruth became a Yankee. Believe it or not, there's a golf course in Griffith Park right by Dodger Stadium. And in 1920, Babe Ruth left uh, left the New York-Boston area uh, for the winter and came out by himself to Southern California to play some golf and relax. And that's when he was sold back, back in New York and Boston. That's when he was sold to the Yankees. And Miller Huggins had a hopper train and somehow tracked down Babe Ruth in, in the greater L.A. area. He finds him at the 18th hole of the Griffith Park Golf Course, runs out there with contract in hand, and Ruth signs the contract at the 18th hole. If you go there today, there's a little marker at the 18th hole that says this is the site of the birth of the curse. Because that's wow. <laughs> the Yankees' fortune changed, as did the Red Sox in different directions. But, you know, a site like that to me is crazy because what in New York... Yankee or Red Sox fan will will know that Ruth became a Yankee in L.A. playing golf. You know what I mean? It's a, yeah. That one to me is one of the coolest sights in the book. And the fact that somebody thought to market and put a little story there I think is great as well. That's that's what's fascinating about the book. The um, Like something, we're getting so many ideas from the book for the podcast. Like one of the things I saw uh, in Connecticut, I believe, is the Wiffle Ball Factory, right? Talk about how Wiffle Ball was invented. You even give the phone number for the, I, I believe it's a phone number for the factory. Well, listen, there's a lot of things like that that are, that are fun. Wiffle Ball's one, uh, softball. You know, I've got where, you know, where baseballs were originally made. I've got, like, I wanted to put it, I think, in there where the top card factory was. These elements that involve baseball are just kind of cool. I located in Delaware, the shore where the, they get the mud, the, the Blackburn mud. Every ball is rubbed with before a baseball game. You know, it's like even those kinds of sites, even though they don't involve exactly the major league, they're just fun because it involves bat and a ball. That's why there's so many movie locations in the book. Anybody who saw The Sandlot or Bad News Bears, how cool is it to go to the diamond and maybe throw a ball on the field of you know where they shot the film, maybe the first baseball film you ever saw as a kid. You know what I mean? So yeah. I like to tie together all those places that are, you know, sort of... Um, they may not be a former major league park, but they still tap into our love of, of hitting a ball with a stick. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah, we actually visited, um, 
because you have um, Hall of Famers that are buried in that state, or right? That you I have every Hall of Famer. Right? Uh, your final resting place. Right. Yeah. So we we went to. Um, oh, Jeff, help me out. John uh, Montgomery Ward. Right. We went to John Montgomery Ward um, in in um, Uniondale. Uniondale, and we actually found another player there. He's not a Hall of Famer. Um, in the same cemetery. Right, his name was Artie Lang, and he uh, he's has seventh most stolen bases in baseball history. So, you know, not not so famous, but uh, you know, he's in the top ten of one of the. Um, no, still, that that matters, and you know, the final resting places. There are people that actually plan their trips around going to visit. You know, where Babe Ruth is, where Honus Wagner is, and, and those places matter to people too. And oftentimes, you'll find little gifts, trinkets. And tokens that people leave at those sites, and like I would leave my yank pad at the Babe's grave site. It's, it's look, all of this stuff. Every one of this, every single site in the book is all about making a connection of some sort. You know, connecting emotionally, physically. That's what it's all about: is connecting dots, making connections, reminding yourself just what it was that got you into the game, hooked in the first place. We noticed that uh, on John Montgomery's uh, stone is really just. Blank. It's just his name and his wife's and and dates. Yep. Not nothing commemorating that he's a Hall of Famer, which uh, that, that is weird. And, and again, I think if it was done, you know, again, I think a long time ago, we just we didn't people didn't celebrate things or get that emotional about it. I think it would be different today. That could be one that maybe could be replaced at some point with more information. But yeah, some of them are like that are very simple, just a name and a date without. In some cases, it, they won't even identify a guy as a baseball player, you know. But it's obviously families, you know, were in charge of those things, and and they do uh, what they're going to do. But but again, for a lot of people that go visit these sites, I didn't want to include literally. And, and Willie McCovey had passed away like right before the book went to press, and I held things up just to get that site in there because I know there are giant fans that will want to go check that out. What's the? Uh, I mean, there's so many. I don't know if you have one, but what? What's your favorite place? Um, you know, I have a lot, but there is one that, that I'll, I'll always go back to and will never, no matter how many times I go there, I always get a, a good feeling. And that is the former site of the Polo Ground in Upper Manhattan. I, I never went there. I was, I think, years old when they tore it, two years old when they tore it down in about 1954. It's obviously where the New York Giants played uh, baseball and football. It's where the Mets played for a couple of seasons. But when I was a kid, um, hearing all those Ebbets Field stories I mentioned earlier, I would see photos of the polo grounds and the shape of that park. I don't know if you know, it looks like a bathtub. Yeah, yeah. The yep. lines like 270 and then 480, the dead center. And there was something about that park as a kid that just absolutely fascinated me. The look of it, the, um, the shape of it, the, the, the thing, the place there, whether it was, you know, shot heard around the world or Willie Mays' catch or whatever. So whenever I go to that former site, you know, and, and there's a marker where home plate used to be, and I just think about, like, everybody who touched that field, everybody who played there, and, and you know, I walk around, it's an apartment complex today, like a lot of these former stadium sites, and I've had so many conversations with people who live there who have no idea where they live, you know, or what took place right there, and I've walked, you know, that area so many times pointing out to people, you know, this is where Mel Lott did this, and this is where Babe Ruth did that, and it's, people are amazed when it's like right under their feet every day, and they're unaware of it, so uh, I, think, I think the former side of the polo grounds, again, for all of the, the killer sites in this book, that's the one that I always go back to when I go back to New York, and, and I just wander around and, and 
dream about and kind of fill in the blank in my mind and kind of picture being in the park when I'm there. You know, there's one one thing I'm, I'm cruising through a book right now, and uh, we just had the Hall of Fame weekend where they inducted uh, six players. But there, you have something in here called the Scouts Wall of Fame, which they are really underappreciated. And if you're in the New York area in Staten Island, that's one place you should go. It's located where the uh, Staten Island Yankees play. I agree, man. I think uh, the Scouts, um, you know, obviously, I, mean, I think they probably used to play a bigger part than they do today because of how baseball has changed. But they're still out there. And, you know, were it not for a Scout, you may not, you may not have seen Mickey Mantle the way you did. Or, you know, there was a great book written about this Scouts who discovered Mike Schmidt. It's actually a very great book, but was sort of a tragic ending. And, you know, the Scouts' stories are wonderful, you know, and I agree with you. I think um, they should be recognized deeper. They're, they're wonderful stories about those guys, especially back in the 40s and 50s. They were just like traveling salesmen, man. They would just travel the country, you know, making notes, visiting families, you know, looking for that diamond in the rough that was going to change the world or, or just be a great average player. And, uh, and I agree with you, man. The Scouts, I always try and put a little something in this book uh, to acknowledge, you know, the, the, the more famous ones. Well, I see our time is running short, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Where can people buy the book? I know I got mine at a uh, at a local bookstore. Oh, cool! Uh, I mean, it's um, it's available usually wherever books are sold. I mean, I know kind of a shame that the bookstores are just you know, shrinking, disappearing at such an alarming rate. Um, but but Amazon.com obviously is still a very right. Get get it to you in just a couple of days. BarnesandNoble.com, obviously, but you know, I always say to support your local bookstore, your independent bookstore. They're the ones who really need it. They can order it for you if they don't happen to have it. But uh, pretty much wherever books are sold, there's a Kindle version of it as well, and uh, and I hope people enjoy it. And I thank you guys for having me on. I mean, to have a nice extended conversation like this. And we didn't talk barbecue, so you may have to have me back. <laughs> Wait, oh, first of all, yes, that was. I had two things. I was going to say, Chris. This is not over. This is part one. <laughs> we would love to have you back on. That's one. Two, you mentioned coming back to New York, and we would love to be able to uh, meet in person uh, when you're in New York. And, uh, yes, we would love to talk about barbecue. Me too, man, because, again, that's another thing, too. I don't think people realize there's certain markets, like if you go to Kansas City or Milwaukee, the tailgating that goes on, um, it's almost like a college football environment. And, and the smell of the meat in the parking lots of parks like that in Kansas City, it's just, it adds a whole other layer to the game that is so cool and so, you know, just appetizing. And so, yeah, I will come back, and whether in person or, or like this, we will talk food at ball games. Awesome. Yeah, we actually went to, uh, we went to uh, Philadelphia, Citizens Bank Park, and we met Boog Powell, uh, Boog Powell, uh, Greg, Greg Luzinski, the bull. Right. And he has a place there, Bulls Barbecue. And, uh, Book's got his the Camden Yard. I right. when that happens. Yeah. It's so Wait. cool when a player can go back and, and, and you know have a place like that. And uh, that, that's always amazing. Um, an amazing thing. I'm glad that uh, you guys got to do that. That's a treat. Yeah. And, and everybody, please check out his website, Chris' website, www.chrisepting.com. C-H-R-I-S-E-P-T-I-N-G.com. A lot of great stuff. And buy the book. Buy the book. There's a roadside baseball website as well, which is simply roadsidebaseball.com. And on there is where I do a roadside baseball podcast, which I think is kind of fun. And, um, you know, there's a lot of of cool interviews and things on there as well you might like to check out. 
Oh, yeah, you great. have your own podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which I just call Roadside Baseball, and I, I track down cool, interesting characters from the game and let them tell their story. And uh, and I think there's some cool stories on there. In fact, there's one from a couple of weeks ago that's a lot that's posted on there now, where I, I sat down with the former. Um, he was like the bad kid for the Washington Senators back in the fifties, and he reveals this story of something he discovered. Um, that involved some kind of cheating on the part of the senators, which is a really interesting, uh, you know, untold story up until now. So you might enjoy that if you have a chance to go check it out. Yeah, that's the. Those are the things that are just the the people that you'd never expect, or you know, the stories that you hear. Those are the best. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thanks Thank for joining you very us. Much. We hope to have you back. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care. I'll see you soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. So, Len, that was interesting, right? Oh, yeah. Very interesting. A lot of great information in that book. That interview barely covered any... you got to get the book. That's all. Just get the book. And now, here's our interview with Lori Rubinson of WFAN. We are, we are so blessed to have with us tonight Lori Rubinson of WFAN. She's on... Uh, sun, usually Sunday nights, but I know she also fills in at other times, and I really enjoy listening to her when I get the chance. So, Lori, welcome to Baseball and BBQ. Thanks so much for having me. Lori, I, I, I have been a WFAN listener uh, since actually, since it first came on the air. I mean, originally, I used to listen to Met Games on the, it was a country music station. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was, that shows you how old we are. <laughs> yeah, uh, so Susan Waldman was back on was on the station back in the day then. Oh yeah, wait, right. Oh, Susan Waldman, uh, Stan. Um, oh, I can't remember. Uh, I, I know who you're talking about. I mean, uh, you know, all, way back, and there was, uh, of course, uh, uh, Pete. Uh, Pete Franklin was Pete there. Franklin was on, and you know, there was. I mean, it was. They started off the station with. You know, doing people that weren't local, right, to to the area, and then they changed it over. So, so Laura, you made your debut uh, Memorial Day 2007, so 12 years from ago. Wow. I actually think it's 13. I, who knows when I, uh, in terms of what's in my what's in my bio or whatever, but I think I think it was 13 years this uh, this spring. Okay, congratulations. And how, how did that come about? Let's see. I had been working working at a co-hosting on a station WCTC in central New Jersey, and I'd been introduced to Mark Chernoff by my agent at the time, and had had a, an interview with Mark. And this was back when WFAM was in Queens in Astoria, Captain Astoria Studios in the uh, in the basement there. And I I had met Mark, and I had just started doing some radio then, and honestly, it was really pretty green, but Mark saw something and was kind enough that he said, you know what, you're not ready for WFAN yet, but you have some potential, so if you'd like to send me something, uh, some of your work, you know, I'm happy to review it and give you some feedback. So I took him up on that, and I would send him, I don't know, probably every six months, every few months, I would send him a... Uh, email him something and, and send him uh, some audio to listen to and he would email me back with some suggestions or thoughts and finally fast forward a couple of, uh, a few years there were some Mark had some 
some openings, and he uh, just sent me an email that said, hey, haven't forgotten about you, and would you would you like to audition? That was Memorial Day. You know, I was thinking about it recently just with Tony Page um, at our station, who's such a gentleman, had announced his retirement, and I was remembering when I first was going to have my on-air audition, and this was, I'm sure Mark tucked me into a spot that thought I could do the least damage. It was like something like, you know, one... I don't know, 1 to 3 a.m. or something like that on a Memorial Day Monday. And I came in the week before because I was, you know, nervous enough about it that I wanted to have a dry run and practice getting to the station and where I needed to go. And I also wanted to see, you know, it's my nature to be prepared. I wanted to see what the, you know, the whole setup looked like. So I wouldn't be doing it for the first time when I was actually going on air. So I show up the week beforehand. I'm standing behind the glass and, and watching, and Tony happened to be on the air, and Tony was kind enough that he said, why don't you throw some headphones on and sit in with me for, for a segment, and I did, uh, which was really nice of him, so that by the time I actually was hosting solo the following week, it, it was actually not my, my first time on, on WFAM. Well, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard Tony Page many times, yes, and uh, yeah, he, he will definitely be missed. Absolutely. So, Lori, your favorite uh, sports seems like baseball and football. So, uh, can I ask you a little about the, the National League East? Sure. So, we know the, the, the Mets are having uh, one of our down years as usual. So, what, what do you see what's happening in the National League East? Who do you think is going to come out of there? And the Nationals, they seem to be making a push. Do you think they're going to get the wild card or take the division? Yeah, you know, the math would tell you where they six and a half back, and we're looking at Braves records 60 and, and 41, so 101, so 61 to play. Yeah, the math, the simple math of it would tell you that the Braves would be most likely to win the division. They are the defending champs. They certainly have a lot of nice talent. I think they will, you know, go out and they have good depth. They have a lot of young players in the minor leagues, and they certainly could fine-tune and go out a little pitching if that's what they think they need to do before now on the deadline. So if I had to put money on it right now, I'd say I'd go with the Braves. I think Washington will continue to make a charge, but I'd keep them in the first wild-card spot. Yeah, it's hard to argue with, with Washington you know, in, a, in a playoff scenario because of their pitching. They have three top-of-the-line pitchers there. Yeah, the weird thing with the Nationals, I was having this conversation uh, my... My nephew is a, is a big, lives in Washington, D.C., big Washington Nationals fan. And the thing to him is the Nationals, as, as a lot of baseball fans know, have never, you know, for all the great teams they've had and all the times over the last, um, you know, number of years that they've been favored to not just win the division, but on paper look like the best team in the National League, the Nationals have never won a playoff series. So since, you know, they... Uh, since their existence as, the, as this recent incarnation of the Washington Nationals, they have never won a playoff series. And what I said to my nephew is, you know, if you win, they always win the division. They're never in the wild card. I said, if you win uh, a wild card game, a one-game, you know, plan with, with Max Scherzer pitching, does that count as winning a series? And he laughed <laughs> and said, I think it does count. You know, it still is a series uh, in a way. It's just a one-game series. So what we agreed was that, in a bizarre way, I think that being a wild card team could actually work in Washington's favor. I think there's been a lot of pressure over these past years of being the favorite. And 
pressure over being the division winner and pressure of being the best team on paper. And I think if they end up a wild card, and as much as it obviously would be a disadvantage to use your best player in that one-game playoff, and now they start a series without him, having the depth of, you know, and this obviously assumes health, but having the depth of their starters and having, you know, the you know, starting pitching that they do, I think they could withstand a, a short series. And, you know, look, as a wild card, you have to face the Dodgers, and the Dodgers are, you can certainly make the case um, that they're, the, you know, by far they're the best team in, in the National League. I don't think there's any question of that. So it would be a tall order, but with the Nats pitching and as an underdog without a lot of pressure, maybe that's what they need to, to go into the playoffs and, and finally start to win. I agree with you, and I, I think uh, the real race here is really in the National League Central, and the Cubs and Milwaukee are going to battle it out. I think I think the Cubs are going to take it, but I wouldn't wouldn't definitely not rule out Milwaukee. Yeah, I think the Central's wide open. You know, the uh, we always have the on paper conversation. Sure. Chicago looks like the the best team. You know, on paper, you look at things like run differential, and the Cubs are plus sixty six, and the Brewers are minus four. The Cardinals are, are plus sixteen. You know, those three teams are within two and a half games of each other. So it looks close, but you know, we look at it and say the Cubs need to, you know, Cubs need to become a more consistent team. They seem to have the, the parts for it, whether or not they'll they'll put that together. Um, you're right. I think the Central's pretty wide open. Lori, let's take a minute uh, to go back to this is your life. And I was doing oh, some... I, I don't know that anybody's interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I was doing some, uh, you know, research online, which, uh, as I, I like to call stalking, um, but you were on the ESPN show, uh, what is it? Uh, Dream Job. Dream Job. And tell us about that experience. That looked uh, pretty neat, pretty cool. And how that came um, about and how you got picked to be on that show. So this was back when it was the earlier days of reality shows, when it was you know, I, I don't know. So I, I feel like, you know, it really was about less of, hey, people who want to be reality stars or get famous or things like that, and it really was more about a, a job audition. And so for me, I was, you know, it was always something that being, you know, working in sports and, and potentially being a sportscaster, a, a sports broadcaster of some sort was, was always a dream of mine, but not anything I had ever pursued. And I saw an ad in the New York Post, you know, just reading the sports section, that said ESPN. This was a, ESPN did a couple of seasons of that show, but this was the first season of it. And that they were going to be holding auditions, a casting call for the show and in Times Square. At the time, it was the ESPN zone. And I showed up at, you had a lineup in Times Square for this. I think there were people who showed up at midnight or 1 a.m. or things like that, but I think I probably got there something like 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. And I don't know, there must have been about a 1,000 people who auditioned out of New York. I think ultimately they auditioned in something like 29 cities around the country. And first pass through, they, they uh, well, the process was 
you you had to make it through. There were all kinds of challenges and you know questions you you know uh, tests you took and little demo tapes and things you had to create and uh, stuff like this. And ultimately, Southport ended up getting cast on the show, and uh, they cast initially they cast ten people, then they decided to get a sponsor and have a Wendy's at large challenger, and then they went back and added. I think they decided that just having one woman didn't look that good, and they added a second, and so they started mucking with uh, the original casting, and it was probably at that point that I, you know, when you said, I think one of you just said that um, something about it looking like a cool thing or whatever it was. Right, I did. One thing that it did make me realize is that a, you know, a reality show is, let's just say that they're interesting, because they're, they're not entirely the way, you know, they, they take these things. And if they don't like the way that people answer questions and things, they'll make it go back. They mm. record, they watch drama. Right. They'll make it look like, you know, they'll, they'll sequester you to try and make people nervous. <laughs> uh, there's always all kinds of stuff like that that goes on um, that uh, I guess it's not in front of the camera. But um, but anyway, it was a, um, it wasn't, it was the early days of this. It was a good experience um, to, to have that opportunity. And I guess two things that I that I remember from it or took away from it. One was it was noteworthy enough in its time that I actually was able to parlay an agent out of it and ultimately some some other broadcasting opportunities and, and radio and, and other things. I I did some some T V work and different things out of it. But the other thing that I, I certainly remember and it was just his birthday, so I so I do remember this as well, is that the host of the show uh, with um, the late Stuart Scott, and you know he was somebody who I think there's the there's the on air persona of Stuart Scott, which everybody remembers. Booyah and all of his catchphrases, uh, right. you know, as cool as the other side of the pillow and all that sort of stuff. But I think when you see the reaction by people who knew him, and I certainly wouldn't consider myself a, a good friend, but I was somebody who was fortunate enough to have had that experience with him that you, if you knew him in person, he just was a really, really, he was a good man and a lovely person. And, you know, he could have big-timed all of us who were, you know, a bunch of nobodies, you know, trying to catch a dream and do something. And instead, he was gracious and kind and just a, a good, caring person. So that's the, that certainly is a fond memory of mine as well. If some so, what's the advice that you give? Would you give to people that want to break into the business today? Because it's, I mean, there's now there's so many more. I guess there's so many more avenues to get into the business. Maybe I, I don't know. Uh, actually, there's still just ESPN and the major networks and stuff. But there's all these radio stations or whatever. What's the advice you'd give to somebody uh, that wants to yeah. get into it? Well, the first thing is when people want uh, talk to me and say they want to, you know, ask me about my career path, I always say because mine was so unusual, and uh, you know, I started my career in marketing. I still work in marketing. I, you know, uh, what I did, you know, it's not like I would say go get an MBA from Wharton. That's the path to uh, getting on air at, at, at WFAN. So I wouldn't follow my career path. But what I, I agree with you in saying there's so many avenues these days. So the biggest thing I, I do give as advice if people ask me is, 
start working, start doing things. You know, the wonderful thing about living in the era of the podcast and, and the age that we live in is that you can create your own content for not a lot of money. And you might be in school and you can do that. Uh, you might be at another job and you can do that. But you can start getting experience and build up a body of work, build up something that you can then showcase and find the right people. You know, in my case, it was it was Mark Turnoff at, at WFAM. But find somebody who then is willing to, the sort of person who has the ability to hire and, you know, for the kind of job that you want and start sending them examples of your work and, and recognize that you have to be persistent, not annoying, but persistent in the sense that you're not going to keep pestering people, but keep, so if it is, in my case, it was sending him samples of my work every six months, so he didn't forget about me, but six months is not enough that you're, you know, twice a year you're not annoying somebody. And then a few years ago, by and suddenly you've gotten better, and there's an opportunity, and, and somebody's thinking of you. So that's, that aspect of things, I would uh, I would say is is relevant, and you know, I, I would just start just start doing it. Lori, before we let you go, I, I do have one question about today's state of, of, of baseball. I'd like to get your thoughts on the, the way the game is played today. You know, the, the strikeouts or home runs or nothing. Does that appeal to you? Do you think that appeals to today's today's fans? What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, you're describing the uh, the three true outcomes: the the home run, the strikeout, and the and the walk. I think that's been going on for a while now. That's it's been a few years in baseball. And on the one hand, no, of course not. I don't think that that style of baseball appeal appeals to most fans. But on the other hand, I think that analytics gets blamed for that style of, of baseball and I think that what I think that what we should be looking at and, and I think there are some teams that we're seeing starting to make a wave back towards this is that uh, you know, I'm not going to ask a player to not try and hit a home run I'm not going to ask a player not to have a good eye and, and walk when that opportunity is there. But I certainly do think cutting down on strikeouts should be something that is mentored and, and taught at all levels of the game. And we see teams, whether it's the Houston Astros or last year with the Boston Red Sox and others, where teams that don't strike out a lot are having success and you know, winning World Series. So I don't know that striking out a lot is something that has to be a big recipe for success in, in today's game. And I think I'll even go further than those three true outcomes and when people talk about like the shifts and are they a problem and things like this, is I do expect that there will be smart organizations that will tutor their players to, it doesn't take a lot, is you just have to be able to beat the shift by you know going the other way with a few pitches so that then a team has to play you honest, and I think we'll start to see. I think we'll start to see teams tutoring players at lower levels in ways to beat the shift, in ways to make contact, and you know. And some of this also is 
changing your approach when you have two strikes. You can have one approach when you're early in the count, and if you want to look for a pitch in a certain part of the zone with a with a certain launch angle and try and drive it, try and hit a home run, that's fine. When you have two strikes, your approach, if you're a smart player, shouldn't change. And at that point, you should be looking just to, to make contact or situationally. It's great to hit a home run, but if you have a runner on third with less than two outs, I, I don't like to think of that as small ball. I think of it as smart ball. Play smart. And I think we'll see a... I, I believe over the next five years we're going to see a, a, I don't know if it's a return to that because I don't think we're going away from the home run but and I don't think we're going away from a you know emphasizing things like on, on base percentage but I think we will see teams that tutor players to beat the shift and not strike out as much. Oh, I, I certainly hope you're right. I mean, I, I, I really. Growing up watching baseball most of my life is it, just I liked it, you know, when they were hitting the other way, maybe a, a uh, hit and run, you know, bunt bunt the oh, bunt the player over. That that to me is really way play baseball. I don't know that we'll I don't know that we'll get back to too much of the bunt the player over. That's where things like analytics, where the statistics will tell you that you are better off having have a higher percentage chance of of scoring. Uh, when you have a player standing on first base and no outs, then when you have a player standing on second base and one out. Mm-hmm. Or there's different things where in different scenarios, I, you know, I don't, I don't anticipate we're going to see a ton of bunting coming back into the game, but, but I do think that there's no reason, at least in my opinion, there's no reason that having a lot of strikeouts needs to be a part of the game. And I'm, so my hope, maybe I'm an optimist, but my hope is that teams will figure out both in terms of beating the shift, hitting the ball the other way, and changing and having a different approach, a two-strike approach. I hope we will see a smarter brand of baseball in, in the next few years. Well, I, I hope you're right. Lori, we want to really thank you much for your time. I've never called in a, a radio show before, I'm going to call you yours, if that's okay with you. <laughs> sure. Always happy. The more the merrier. Always happy to have uh, people call my show. And always appreciate anybody listening to, uh, to you know, whether it's my show or uh, WFAN in general. Uh, appreciate the listen. And, and we're going to call you uh, twice a year. That's <laughs> twice a year. Not to be annoying, just twice a year. <laughs> on air. On air, you can call as often as you want. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Lori. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Lori Rubinson. That was really a great interview. And thank you to Chris Epting, author of Roadside Baseball. Not only author of Roadside Baseball, photographer of Roadside Baseball as well. And many other books. Yeah, check it out. And we owe you guys a Hall of Fame player that we mentioned in the, in episode 39, right? So we owe you guys that. We haven't forgotten. We also are going to give you guys a big barbecue episode, so be on the lookout for that. Thank you very much to our listeners. We appreciate all of you. And if you make comments about the show, give us a call. It's 516-855-8214. Email us at baseballandbbq at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Facebook page. The
And with that, we'll bid you adieu. Adieu. Goodbye. Adieu. Goodbye.